CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership. And we are today we're talking to a fantastic group about uh, what's next for higher ed. And I have a couple of announcements really quick. Um, just so folks know, we are moving to monthly webinars. Our next webinar will be May 28th. And the reason we're having it later in the afternoon is because we're gonna be joined by um, our friends at the peer review portal from Australia. <laughs> so we're, we're going very international the next time around, but we'll be talking about issues like accreditation and program review. These are you know, really hot topics as we go into the fall and, and you know, we have to figure out how to do these things. Um, uh, in a different, perhaps different way than we have before, and, and the importance of assessment. We have people from all over the country, I see, in our chat. Um, and then tomorrow, Chell turns one. We are uh, having our one-year anniversary, and we'll be uh, having a launch into year two party on social media. So let me go ahead and introduce our guests. We have Tom Shaver, Shaver, I can't say your name right, who is the founder and CEO of Ad Astra, and I have uh, benefited from uh, uh, learning more about uh, their organization and the amazing work they do uh, around course scheduling and using on-campus resources. And then um, I have to say, Gary Stocker and I have been having a great conversation going on LinkedIn <laughs> the last few weeks around collaboration. Um, I wrote an article about it and Gary had already been thinking about these things. So um, uh, that's been a fantastic uh, sharing ideas. And then we are very, very pleased because we got him at the last minute, Dr. Glenn Rockamore, who is uh, the president of Cal Southern. And we are very excited to have him joining us and getting his perspective from a 100% online university. And so I just want to say a few uh, comments before we get started. Um, you know, I've been obviously thinking about this uh, idea of collaboration even before uh, you know, this crisis. And so, you know, to me, this is not about the crisis. This is about the, the future of higher ed and how is higher ed going to survive? You know, I was at a, an institution um, that, uh, a very small institution before I started Chell that, you know, was very tuition dependent, had a small endowment. And, you know, to me, even at that point, it was, it seemed like it was going to be critical um, to uh, have a, collaboration that would allow us to share resources, reduce our costs. And I apologize to those. I, I'm going to turn off video because we're trying to, if you're just a participant, we're going to turn off video because <laughs> we're trying to save bandwidth. So sorry for the interruption there. Um, and uh, in any case, uh, you know, we, we really need to think through, you know, we've got the online component, we've got the residential component, we've got how do we get more students into, um, you know, into college at a, in an affordable way. And by, and using, you know, and I know from my own experience, having been on one of the biggest campuses in the country, E.T. Austin, and one of the smallest, Menlo College, we only had 800 students at Menlo College, yet we still aren't using our resources well. You know, we've got classrooms empty half the time. Um, and yet there's so many, you know, people talk about the enrollment decline, but the reality is there's more students than ever who are going to be needing to get some kind of college level training. And so anyway, that's my take on these issues. And we're really happy to have everybody here today. Again, check the uh, um, comments and, uh, and uh, Gary, just when you come up, we'll all stop sharing the screen. But for now, Tom, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Sure. Um, hi again, I'm Tom Shaver, founder and CEO at Ad Astra. We're, uh, We've been exclusively focused on higher ed since January of 96, so a little over 24 years now. Prior to that, I worked with my dad, who was an architect, who was also focused on educational design work. And so his, his work dated back to the 50s. We did consulting together, and then I started at Astra in 96. Um, we have uh, right around 520 institutions that we work with currently. And we're focused on uh, this kind of seemingly mundane little slot within higher education of rolling out a schedule. Um, the argument we make, and the reason that I'm still so passionate about it today, is that the schedule is really 
Um, arguably the most foundational thing we do as colleges and universities because we exist to teach students through courses and the schedule is obviously the mechanism through which that occurs. Um, it's also the mechanism through which we allocate, depending on the kind of institution, half or more of the operational budget. And um, those of you that have been involved in scheduling over the years know that the schedule also is um, something that is typically not very um, optimally um, um, organized and executed. We, we like to start with the question um, of, you know, why we're even rolling out a course schedule. It's kind of a uh, borrowing from the Simon Sinek start with why framework. Um, most people will say that you know, all the way up to the mission level of the institution, they exist to transform lives of their students. And, um, and, and so if we start there, um, then you know, the, the framework that he suggests, Simon Sinek that is, um, is that we build our standard operating uh, procedures around our why so that they'll support our why. And in most cases, I think we can acknowledge that um, how we roll out a course schedule isn't optimized for transforming student lives always. Um, and, it's, and it's nothing that's really diabolical where, I mean, I, I believe that basically all of the faculty and department chairs on campus um, really are passionate about graduating students, especially in, in this era going forward where those credentials are going to be critical for uh, students to be able to get good uh, jobs. But um, the process isn't optimized for that. And it's a process that's been kind of handed down and inherited and, and kind of really not even reflected on or challenged uh, uh, over the years. And it's a process that's really optimized more for uh, departmental autonomy than um, for really meeting the needs of students so they can make maximum degree progress and graduate. And again, that's not a knock on anybody. That's just the process we've all inherited over the years. But where, where we see our mission, and I think where we see our mission really being even more um, important going forward is that in a, in a time where I think the industry as a whole is anticipating some real financial challenges, um, how do we how do we still pursue improved outcomes? How do we still pursue a more educated um, society? Um, some of these 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 uh, objectives that started with President Obama years ago. How do we still pursue those things with fewer dollars? And um, you know, our belief is one of the things we need to do is to really think hard about how we roll out our course schedule. And it could be all online, you know, like, um, like uh, um, Dr. Rookmore's uh, institution, and, and, and it could be hybrid, it could be on ground. And so this is less about my saying that a particular model is, is, is needed in that regard from a modality standpoint, because I think different institutions fill different demographics. What, what I'm really proposing is that the schedule needs to start with this idea that it's not just an amalgam of loosely managed activities for different faculty members. It has to be a cohesive systematic thing that really allows students to progress conflict-free through their pathways that they're being advised to follow so that they can graduate on time. And, and we need to make hard decisions like how do we, if we have three campuses at an institution and an online college and we do day classes and night classes, that's seven different ways theoretically that we can teach every major. But if we have, let's say, 100 majors, we probably only have four or five that have a critical mass of enrollment that would support seven distinct cohorts of students progressing in those unique ways. Well, can we be thoughtful about that? Can we analyze that? Can we decide how we're going to roll out these majors in a cohesive way across academic units? all get together, be transparent with our students so they can plan their lives, especially, you know, the post-traditional students where we're trying to close these equity gaps. They have an enormous uh, challenges, obviously, in terms of taking care of, of, of relatives or children at home. They have transportation challenges, but we're not building schedules with the transparency and cohesiveness that would allow them to succeed. 
the, the good news about all of this, we think the opportunity is that a student aligned schedule and a cohesive schedule is by definition also a resource efficient schedule because we're not rolling out a bunch of offerings with expensive, valuable faculty members teaching four students instead of 20 or 25, which was the, the you know, the desired, let's say, cap of the class. So that's really where we, again, it's, it's kind of mundane, uh, but it requires an enormous amount of planning, enormous amount of coordination and collaboration between academic units, and just rethinking that the schedule is actually, it's got to be a systematic thing. It has to be an institution-wide uh, um, kind of an asset that we manage in that way. And we have to be optimizing for our mission, not for departmental autonomy in this day and age. Absolutely. I agree, you know, as you know, 100% with that. I, I think a lot of times that uh, we have a tendency in higher ed. And you know, one of the things I want to acknowledge is that a lot of you know, a lot of the news I'm seeing out right now is really focusing in on the, the you know, kind of top level institutions. And there's not a lot of focus on yeah. where most students are going to college. Right. You know, it's it's the, the Texas A&Ms and the Notre Dames and the Boston, you know, but the most students in this country are not going to those types of institutions. Right. <laughs> you know, they're at community college, there's at online colleges, they're at state colleges, you know, the kind of what we would call, you know, I, not that they're any lesser, but that they're, you know, kind of the lower tier institutions. And yeah. that's really where we should be focusing more of the, the resources, I think, because that's where the bulk of our students are, are getting uh, their education. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and there's, I mean, also, I, I think, you know, we need to say that there's, that there's far from anything wrong being a, a, an institution that's focused on undergraduate instruction. You know, we don't all have to aspire to be research one prestigious, you know, from a research cachet standpoint. I mean, can't we just educate undergraduates and be really good at graduating them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, um, and yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I, I, I decided to move from UT Austin to, to Menlo College, because I really do care about undergraduate education and wanted to be at a place where the focus was more on teaching and, and undergraduates. Not that big institutions can't be, but it's just, it's, there are different incentives, certainly for faculty. Right. Yeah, so. All right, well, let's go over to Gary, um, and you can go ahead and share your screen because I'm not sharing mine at the moment. And Thank you, Manning. There you go. And good, good morning to everybody. Just bring up something quickly here. Good morning again. My name is Gary Stocker out of St. Louis, and, and here's the point that I'm going to make on collaboration. And all the stuff that we're talking about is a financial statement crisis. Terry mentioned really we're looking forward and that's true. But what we do at College Viability is we look at the finances of, of private colleges, we don't do publics, across the country and make them easy to compare, both for college leaders, um, board members, presidents, and even for parents. We have an application that allows us to do that. Because we believe that collaboration in a financial sense needs to be to scale. And the model that we have written about, and I think Terry, some of the things you have seen, are we have developed models that show 10 or more private colleges in some sort of alliance, be that a, 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 an operational agreement, a joint venture, a true merger, in rare cases an acquisition. Scale is needed to manage the cost piece. I am guessing that most of the colleges and organizations represented today have done a lot of cost cutting already. We read where the cost cutting has been to the bone and that there's really no material ways to cut material costs left. And so the only way to do that is to look at the kind of large scale alliance that we've seen really in, in almost every other industry from automobiles to hotels to airlines to you name it, um, grocery stores, that kind of large scale co collaboration has come into play. And what we have done, and I'll go over this in the screen just briefly here in a second, is we've taken the data from the National Center for Education Statistics, the IPEDS database, and we have made it easy for folks to look at, customize, read, and understand. And here's the point that we're trying to make. We are all intimately familiar with FAFSA. We have all filled them out. I know I have. And so that's, and that gives, 
that gives colleges a chance to know the finances of students and parents, but really it's very difficult for parents and students to understand finances of colleges. And so if you will, what you see on your screen is our equivalent of a FAFSA. And I'll just pause for one second to show you what it's about. And then Terry, I'll turn the uh, screen back over to you. And again, what you, what you can see here is we have grabbed, there's 23 colleges here uh, from 11 different states. And again, all of this data is from iPads. And we've looked at the six year changes from fiscal years 2013 to 2018. We're not doing any predictions. This is the raw data. We do a little subtraction. That's all that we do. And so you can see some colleges, some small to medium-sized private colleges represented the states they're from. And just let's look at a couple of data pieces just to show how we compare things. And let's look at one of the colleges here in St. Louis. And over the last six years, from 2013 to 2018, their enrollment has gone, their full-time equivalent enrollment has gone down about 500 students. On the other end, an organization in MAID, Husan or Hassan University, has done, has done better uh, with enrollment growth um, of over 3,000. But this gives us a chance to compare really everything in between. Um, we can sort this, if you want to do it alphabetically, we can sort it alphabetically, but that's not the point. Let's look at expenses. And I clicked on expenses and let's look at those. Um, we'll leave them in the top. So Simmons University in Massachusetts has had their expenses go up 65 million over the course of those six years. Their revenue has gone up 55 million. Do the math, not really a good situation. Not one that's tenable on the long term. The way to manage these collaborations from a financial perspective, and that's the point that we're trying to make, is to manage this column by sharing those expenses with other organizations. So you scale everything from leadership salaries, and then we all know what the story is behind that. And then just look at revenues. Here's core revenues. Let's go from the bottom this time. So here's an organization, Norwich University. I'll, uh, better met, I'll use Quincy University in Illinois. This is one of the how am I nice here? Nicest, one of, the, one of the most challenged private colleges in the country. Their auditors for 2017, 2018 expressed a going concern, which is not a good thing, about the viability of Quincy University. And you can look and you understand why. Their expenses have gone down 3.5 million, understandable. Their revenues have gone down not quite 9 million. So this is kind of what we do across the board. This is the summary. And again, we do it for different categories. This is the same 23 colleges, but it itemizes the enrollment for each of the years. Uh, the endowment we didn't look at before, we can look at that. So Fonfon University um, had an endowment of 20 million in 2013. It's down 6 million in 2018. Again, you can draw your own conclusions. The last thing I wanna show on the video, and then Terry, I'll give it back to you, mm -hmm. is I'm assuming we all follow the announcement from McMurray College, which is a couple miles, a couple hours north of St. Louis a couple years ago, and their announcement of the closure. I just want to cut, point out a couple of things that show us how easy it is to see which of these colleges cannot reasonably expect to continue as standalone parochial models. And first one is from the balance sheet, and this is copy and paste because it's easier to read. They started with a million and change in 2019, and not even a million to start their year in 2017, 2018. And I understand that May 31st, which is when their fiscal year ends, is a low cash point, but nonetheless, that's a small number. Let's look at their debt. Their uh, McMurray College is $9 million in change in debt. Not a monstrous number, but of course, you have to pay interest on that debt. And when you pay that interest, that's money you can't spend on salaries and academics and those kind of things. Their endowments and finance speak their net assets without donor restrictions, essentially cash. You don't see this very often, uh, a million point four in the hole. And even the donor restrictions, the $20 million number is 30 million below what's generally accepted to be a modest number to start with. And then here's what we read about, Terry, this is what you and I have talked about. This is from the statement of activities for the fiscal year ending May 19 of last year or May 31st of last year. McMurray had $13 million in list fees. That's what they would have charged to get their standard tuition. They discounted $7 million in change of that mm. and only netted $5 million. This is what's happening everywhere because yes. each individual private college is offering that tuition discount. Yep. That's all it is. Like you might buy a car <laughs> and getting $1,000 off. It's a tuition discount. That's where the revenue, the revenue fall will continue because especially as you move forward. 
these organizations, Terry, will want to increase revenue and they'll do anything. And now yep. they're allowed to, to bring a student on board. And yes. with that, Terry, I'll turn the screen back to you. Thanks. And, you know, the, the reason that uh, Gary is saying they're allowed to, because now there's, um, you know, basically the antitrust ruling came down around admissions. And so there's no longer kind of this, it was really more of a gentleman's agreement, but that you can go after somebody's, somebody else's admit, admit after, you know, basically May, <laughs> um, which of course some schools ignored anyway. But um, yeah, I, it's, it's a really interesting uh, situation for a lot of colleges because the way they're attracting more students, even though their enrollment might be increasing, the way they're doing it is by offering them more. And so the bottom line is not increasing. And that's something that I have been worried about <laughs> for a while. But in any case, let's uh, pass it over to Glenn. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you, Terry, and uh, everybody that's joined today. Uh, again, my name is Glenn Rockmore. And let me give you a little bit of uh, framework here is that uh, I've been in higher education for 30 years. and. Uh, most of that time was in the public sector. I, I uh, worked for a community college and uh, spent 18 years as a community college president. So during that time, uh, I was involved in trying to facilitate the institution into moving into some portion of online learning. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, I met an awful lot of resistance. Uh, and uh, part of it is the framework uh, of our fine faculty um, and the perception that online is not going to produce the same quality, the same experience. And so as I read that, and, and perhaps get a little bit controversial here, is that then that becomes more about them and less about the student. And so it gets manifested in interesting ways, as Tom talked about, is that when you're talking about a schedule, then how is that schedule being developed? Is it being developed with the mindset that we're here to serve students and we're here to allow them access and the ability to succeed? Well, uh, we know that a lot of these schedules are not uh, uh, set up that way. So the change that has to occur it has to be us. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have a 14 year old boy who's right now upstairs doing his eighth grade class online. But <laughs> even before this uh, pandemic, he was doing the same uh, in that uh, a large portion of his out of class time was all online. And so, uh, in fact, he's the family technologist. And so that tells me that 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 mode of delivery uh, is highly uh, acceptable to uh, this particular generation and, and the generation before. And so how do we adjust our thinking on that and be able to deliver our education in ways that are very different and perhaps uncomfortable for some of our faculty? So another example I have is my wife teaches chemistry at a community college and she's done so for 23 years. And all of a sudden now, just in a few weeks, she has converted all of those chemistry courses to online. And I have to tell you that before that, she would not have thought about doing something like that. And, and of course, honestly, the laboratory portion remains to be very challenging. She loves it. She actually, actually does love teaching uh, online and has been successful in making that conversion. And so it really gets us down a little bit to an equity situation on two fronts. One is how are we able to serve students that cannot go into a brick and mortar and uh, are underserved students that can't afford to go into a brick and mortar on a, on a regimented schedule because they have other things in their lives they have to take care of. Uh, they, they may be single parents, they uh, have to work. And so how can we provide that access and education? Well, online is a modality that will do that. Uh, as long as you're set up and teaching the class in a way that it's flexible and not on a Tuesday, Thursday from 8.30 to 10.30 kind of format, uh, which is what we do at California Southern. And so here 
uh, students can take the courses on their own time. So it's not unlike uh, a MOOC format that, that uh, I take advantage of uh, just for my own enrichment. And so that provides the access. Now I have to say though, that uh, the other side of equity is that we're, we're still not 100% there in terms of the electronic access for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so while laptops may be fairly ubiquitous, uh, the bandwidth is not. And so as we get more sophisticated in teaching online, uh, those the demand on technology is going to increase as we expect the quality to increase. For example, if you're thinking about doing a chemistry lab, you can imagine there'll be a lot of simulations involved in that. Uh, we have a nursing program, and so there, there are simulations that are in, involved uh, in that nursing program. It goes all the way up to the doctorate level. Uh, so I, I think we need to adjust and, and be thinking how we go out into the future. Uh, yes, it's absolutely true that the brick and mortar being in the classroom is definitely for, for some students. But um, when you think over time as well, that uh, most faculty have gone to a, a learning management system. And so mm -hmm. they have for their own classrooms, basically the baseline for online. Mm -hmm. and, and yet they're still functioning, you know, in the brick and mortar. So uh, I think it's for that very reason that the transition has not been devastating and, and actually has been much easier to go online because of that very fact. Uh, so the, the, in terms of collaboration, and uh, how we're able to help. Well, we've been doing this for 40 years. Now, all 40 years, of course, was not all online because uh, you know, the technologies weren't there <laughs> that many years ago. But uh, we have been 100% online for a very, very long time. And so different kinds of modalities fit into that. Uh, I think we can certainly provide courses for students that are in a brick and mortar format and need to, to fill in their schedule because the schedule is awkward for them. And so they can pick up some undergraduate work from us and, uh, and then also uh, graduate level work. So it does provide that, that flexibility and the sharing and we do reach out particularly to community colleges to let their students know that we have courses that are available online if they need to fill in the schedule. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the collaboration piece. And fortunately, uh, most have been very excited about doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's interesting because even when I was a provost at uh, Menlo College, we, you know, when a student, we, because we were so small and had so few faculty, we weren't able, always able to offer every single course at the right time for every student. And so we would often send them to an online college and say, okay, this is a course, you know, but the, but the critical point of that uh, was being able to accept those credits and make sure that the course they were taking met our requirements. And, and that's something where I think the collaboration has to begin is sharing of syllabi, you know, looking at ways to do transfer credits. And of course, all of that is, is regulated in, in various ways. Um, well, if I, can, if I can jump in quickly, sure. one of my soapboxes <laughs> is that I absolutely deplore articulation <laughs> you know, it has driven me crazy for 30 years because we make a guarantee to our students that they finish up with us they're going to progress they're going to move forward and yet they continually hit a roadblock that their uh, transfer institution of choice will not take all of their credits yeah. mm -hmm. that has to change i i think that has to be a, a major change in uh, the educational system throughout the united states Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a question, or it's more of a comment, I think, is that accrediting bodies differ in allowing simu simulated clinical hours, and it's a big problem for programs in her university uh, in terms of remote teaching now, and even the possibility this fall. Um, so again, it comes back to the accreditors and the, you know, yes, articulation agreements were sometimes the bane of my existence as a provost, because we had to constantly be looking at them and updating them and and making sure that, uh, you know, it's both for us in terms of the courses we were offering, but also what credit we were able to, and willing to uh, take in. And this is even more critical because um, unfortunately, as Gary's data is showing, 
a lot of institutions are going to fail uh, and not be able to continue after uh, this coming year. Uh, and it's a process that had begun obviously years before because of the increase in discount rates and so on. So for those of you who don't know what a discount rate is, that's what Gary was showing us, which is basically that almost every private institution in this country has some level of discount uh, that is, um, uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, 5% to over 50%. If you're getting over 50%, you're not viable, as Gary, I'm sure, can tell us. So go ahead, Gary, you had a comment? Well, yeah, and I just want to tie in with what Glenn was talking about with articulation. And again, that has been a challenge for many, but let's envision a collaborative scenario and Glenn, you could pick 10 or 20 colleges in your area and let's envision those 10 or 20 in some form or fashion had some semblance of an alliance and there was articulation over some period of time granted for every single course in that conglomeration of organizations. Well, for sure, if you go outside that organization, you're gonna lose that articulation, you're gonna lose your credits. But think about the scenario when you stay inside any of those 20 colleges and all of a sudden that articulation maybe is not the bane of your existence anymore, Terry, but it becomes an asset for that larger scale organization. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. And that's, I know, I think where the kind of work that Tom is doing around, you know, it, let's say you get those 10 institutions together, not only do they need, you know, the articulation, they need to make sure the courses are being offered at the right time. So, right. you know, is it Tom, if you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think the bottom line is that we just don't look at this stuff in kind of comprehensive and pragmatic ways, typically at institutions. Again, we we kind of consider, um, you know, kind of down the path of academic freedom that the course schedule, because it's part of their rolling out of their classes, is kind of this extension of academic freedom. And instead of saying, look, we, we, we've got to coordinate all of these different entities together um, and and maybe decide that, hey, we just don't have the capacity to teach a particular course. And we know that an institution down the road has that course and has seats available. And so, but we only, we only can get to that conversation by studying the data, realizing that we have a problem and you know, looking at it systematically, right? And then, and, 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 and again, focusing on the pragmatic element of, of what we're trying to do with finite resources versus kind of being dogmatic about, well, we can't allow our students to take classes from them because they will be different quality and we're giving away FTEs or whatever the dogma happens to be. But, but instead say, look, let's, let's, let's look at this practically. We can't be all things to all people. We can't allow we can't teach every major in every conceivable way all the time. We just don't have the capacity to do that. It's a zero sum world. So how do we get the most impact in alignment with our students? And it's certainly not by having no game plan and allowing everybody to do what they want and, and not really collaborating between the departments. Yeah, go ahead, Gary, you had a comment or question. Rather. Yeah, so, so on a, a follow up question for Tom, but a setup first. And a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a medium-sized college president, and we were talking about the early, S, early parts of collaboration. I said, hey, what about those low enrollment courses? Yeah. We'll use Glenn's example of chemistry. You know, you've got an upper-level chemistry course for students in your college, and you're paying an adjunct faculty member thousand bucks a credit, whatever, to pay to teach that class. Yes. What happens, Tom, if you look at bringing, again, just picking a number, 10 colleges, each with four students in that upper-level chemistry or English course, and bring them together in one online course. Well, we all know what happens, the costs stay the same and the net revenue goes up, Tom. Right, yeah, and that's exactly right. And, you know, we, we study this stuff, we benchmark um, course fill rates in a metric, it's a simple metric we call enrollment ratio. And it's basically a room agnostic metric that looks at census enrollment divided by the, the course caps. And we aggregate by the course on a particular campus from that modality, right? So what we find is, is kind of a shocking, and we have 300 and, I don't know, 320 institutions, I think, in this benchmark now. 
we find that on a typical campus and a typical major term, usually a fall is when we benchmark, that only about a third of the courses are really balanced with student demand with a shocking number, the highest percentage actually, Gary, are in this underfilled, below 70% fill rate kind of category, which basically means that almost half of the curriculum is being subsidized by really high enrollment, high fill classes. And that's not, that's not something that's sustainable probably with what's gonna happen to college revenues going forward. And it's not something that's necessary, right? We can, again, if we look at it systematically and in, in, in a more planful way, we can cut a lot of this uh, down either through collaboration like you're mentioning or deciding, you know, we're only gonna teach in, on certain campuses at certain time and developing a plan for that. You know, there are a lot of different ways to attack this, but only if you have visibility into the problem. Right, and um, one of the questions is, you know, how do you get buy-in internally from faculty and administration? Well, you know, I don't think it, I mean, in first of all, it has to be made easier to do. So accreditation bodies are gonna have to allow it to happen. <laughs> um, and, and they do to a certain extent. I mean, you do see uh, consortia and so on. I mean, even the Claremont colleges uh, are a good example of an existing collaboration slash consortium. Mm -hmm. And actually I was talking to another colleague um, at AACNU who was saying, yes, there, there are lots of different consortia, but they aren't to the level yet where they're really integrating and, and sharing classes. So I think the first step is identifying consortia that are, exist and finding ways to deepen those connections in terms of, of sharing courses and using those as examples to then, you know, you know, write the research papers, the white papers and say, look, you know, this is a viable alternative to closing. I mean, that's, that's the point we're at right now is that there are institutions that are going to close that probably wouldn't have to if we created this kind of collaboration consortium you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, and so getting the buy-in is not gonna be that difficult when it's a matter of survival. The, the bigger question is, you know, how do we get to the point of saying that this is, you know, this is, I mean, it's clearly better than closing, but how do we get people talking more about it? And, and I would offer that the market will move this, 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 this pattern, and it's gotta be a material change. It can't be, $10,000 here and $10,000 there. It's gotta be millions of dollars in cost reduction or new revenue, net revenue, not new revenue, but net revenue enhancements. And the market's gonna move it. The regulatory bodies almost have to follow the market. But here's, we're gonna call it tough love and move on. What we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is not that complex. It's been done in many other industries. Somebody's gonna do it. Somebody's probably working on it right now. Envision if you were a first mover, and brought together 10 or 20, the competitive advantages you have will be monstrous. On the other hand, as Tabiev said, what if you don't? Mm -hmm. You could be stable financially now, but find a competitive yourself at a competitive disadvantage if you weren't part of one of those larger organizations. Yes, it's tough. It's ridiculously tough. Every time some kind of business model changes, the protests are constant. And I remember Concordia in Portland, Mm -hmm. Within 24 hours of Concordia Portland announcing their closure, one student had filed a class action suit. And I see that everywhere this happens. And Glenn, God bless you for being the president of a college. It's not a fun gig because every time these things happen, <laughs> those roles get ugly, but it's just part of the process. Yes. Yeah, so well, but, but okay. does it really need to be part of the process? Uh, you're right, it is. Uh, before I left the public system in California, we had uh, what's called guided pathways, and my college was deeply involved in that national program. And so the whole intention here was actually to build a continuous schedule all the way through the two or, or worst case, three-year uh, pattern uh, in which a student actually would know uh, where they're going. And so from course to course to course, they actually have a very clear idea of what their end goal is and how that pathway is getting them uh, there. Even to the point of saying, you get to the end of this, here are the jobs that, uh, or careers that are going to be available to you, and here's what they're going to pay. And so the student will, through transparency, know from the very beginning, I enter into this, this uh, course of study 
then uh, I may love it to death, but I get to the end and I don't have a livable wage at that point. That was a very important program. It did meet resistance. And, and um, the fact of the matter is, and I, I don't want to be specific on this because it'll get too controversial, but there are protections uh, for faculty that uh, makes these kinds of changes very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gets me back that we to reordering our thinking to our students are our clients, they are our mission, they are our goal, and how that changes the way our lives work should be less relevant uh, than that is. And so how many times have I seen um, well, I even see it in business where somebody comes into a structured job, they know what that structure is, but over time, there is this movement toward, let's restructure that so that it fits my lifestyle better. And it's, it's kind of like that, is that you may come in as a, a brand new faculty member and, and uh, the department gives you these courses, some of them may be in the evening, and over time, it begins to migrate to a point of convenience. And so I'm sorry if I insulted anybody by saying so, but I, it's what I have seen over my 30 years. And so um, until we become student-centric, student outcome-centric, uh, it's gonna be hard to see change. Yeah, and, but you know, the, the problem with that, Glenn, yeah, I, I was at University of Washington, I was at University of Texas at Austin, and, um, you know, I know that uh, the, the, the incentives for faculty at these large R1 institutions is to publish, publish, publish. <laughs> you know? and, and, you know, frankly, uh, you know, that was, was towards, as I got, you know, got to full professor, um, that was frustrating for me because I, I, I knew I couldn't focus as much on teaching. And I knew that I had to focus more on, you know, where, you know, doing quality research, which is not a you know, horrible thing. It's just, we need to find balance. And um, there are those institutions, obviously that's why we call them R1, <laughs> because they're research institutions. But, um, you know, that's not where the vast majority of students are going to college. And, you know, I wanna come back to Taryn's questions, you know, do students really want to do an online course, uh, you know, is like an uh, upper level uh, chem student? Um, you know, it depends. If they're at Notre Dame, no, they're not going to want to do their, you know, they're paying a lot of money to do, you know, face to face. But if they're at Menlo College, I had a ton of students who wanted to do online courses if it, it was made it easier for their life and their schedule. You know, it's not just about the faculty's lives being, you know, being able to schedule things that, that fits better for their lives. It's about the students' things being able to fit their lives. You know, we had, a, I mean, almost every student on that campus, and even at UT Austin, you know, I can't tell you how many times I had students come and tell me, um, you know, I can't take this class because it, it interferes with my work schedule. <laughs> You know? mm -hmm. And that's not what you want to hear, but that's the reality of these students. You know, my attitude when I was at UT Austin was like, well, why are you, why are you working? You know, you should take, you know, stop working and, and go to school, focus on school. It's like, well, that's not that person's reality. <laughs> they have right. to work. And, you know, I know I had to work when I was an undergrad. I was lucky that I could work on campus, but um, so that made my life easier, but not everybody can work work on, on campus. And, you know, I think Mani's point is, and thanks Jeff for your comments, yeah, agile transformation is, is really critical at this time, but, um, you know, not all students have the understanding of, of navigating through online, which is, um, and I'm sure you can address this, Glenn. I mean, what do you guys do to help students uh, uh, navigate to that online education? Well, what we do, uh, we have kind of a unique model, which is one of the reasons that I enjoyed, uh, joined Cal Southern, is that we have a one-to-one. -one. So our faculty are called mentors. And so the faculty mentor has uh, delivered the curriculum out onto the platform, and they each mentor has a student. We have a one-to-one -one faculty to student ratio. And uh, now that doesn't mean they only have one student, but each student has that mentor that is basically on 24 seven uh, communication possibility there. Uh, the other is the, uh, we have academic advisors and the academic advisors are also uh, pretty much on a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio as well. And this is where more on the student services side, the learner services side, students can uh, get support 
uh, from that side as well. Uh, in terms of uh, outreach, uh, it's really just the, the attraction of being able to learn on your own schedule, as you had talked about, because it fits my schedule. Uh, I have to be honest, most of our students are actually working uh, adults, and so uh, they may be already practicing psychologists and, and things like that. So, but what I think is going to happen is because of the pandemic and because of people students and uh, faculty and professors becoming more familiar with the quality of online education that the younger student is uh, in a much larger way is going to migrate to that delivery method yeah well it's very interesting because um you know I, i'm trying to figure out what my uh, my son just finished is finishing right now actually his first year of college and he's trying to figure out what he was going to do over the summer and you know he's probably he is looking at you know getting a remote internship or job but i said well why don't you you know you don't have to do it for credit just go on coursera and you know take a class so that like you take a intro econ class and when you take the regular econ class you'll have a, a leg up you know yeah. <laughs> and understand the basics so you'll do better when you take the regular econ class you know right, right. um and so you know i think that i think coursera's numbers already are going through the roof of people taking classes right now and i think that's even going to get bigger over the summer because you don't necessarily need to take the class for credit you you, you just want to take that class because you need the knowledge or um you know you have a class that you're going to take eventually for credit um and i think that's another way we're going to see online uh, playing an important role. Um, you know, I, I, you, somebody, I think somebody was saying they're taking it. I mean, I'm taking an edX course right now because, you know, it's free and, and it's with one of my former Stanford uh, professors and I'm like, hey, this is cool. Um, I hadn't really explored it that much in, until now. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we're going to see this play out. And, you know, the faculty, you know, the, the one thing I will say, is, and I'm sure this is true for you uh, at Cal Southern, is that the faculty have to be at the core of, of all of this. Um, and I know Tom knows, <laughs> well, we all know this. Yeah, the faculty are critical to any change that's that's made. And that comes back to, um, you know, I'm, I'm really not worried as much about the students wanting to take online courses. I'm more worried about the faculty being prepared to, you know, do the kind of that hybrid approach um, and being trained properly and and supporting, you know, coming in. And actually it's funny, all my friends now are saying that they're all being pulled into task forces and committees to talk about this transition into the fall. Yeah. And um, you know, it's 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 something that we have to keep in, in mind. And um, you know, they are are going to have to come back to what does it mean to teach online? <laughs> You know, and um, because we don't, the future is so uncertain that it's very likely, even if we come back to residential campuses in the fall, that there's going to be another point in the near future where we're going to be teaching online again. And so I do think this summer is going to be a time that um, we, we're going to, hey, uh, Monty saying, you know, her son's at UW-Seattle and they, they're just posting recorded sessions with little interaction. That's not a great model, obviously. <laughs> um, and I know my son who's in high school is dealing with that as well. And he's basically crashing and burning this semester because he, he can't, it's too hard to keep himself motivated when he doesn't have the structure. So that's part of the issue is, you know, we, we have to do this and create structure. We, we can't have, you know, I mean, yes, students need to be able to do it on their own time. But I do believe that, uh, you know, you also have to, uh, you know, have structure. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that it's the fact, you know, we need to pull the faculty together and, and really decide how we're going to move forward. Some are going to be better at doing online than others. And maybe, you know, we make sure that those faculty are, you know, the ones doing online. And I know there's, a, there's so many different ways to approach it, but in any case, um yeah, yeah I, Terry, yeah. if you don't mind really quickly i, I just to throw out what i hope is an, an optimistic kind of a comment here for everybody our experience has been that um that if we can start with some objective benchmarking faculty are almost almost always very supportive of of 
thoughtful, planned out, justifiable change if it's not just, you know, dramatic and it's not just, you know, based upon anecdotes. I mean, they've literally been trained to challenge, you know, that, <laughs> you know they're, 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 they're trained skeptics, but he once said to me, and I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. And, um, and should, we all should be, right? So we always like to start with benchmarking and understanding the lay of the land so that people can see the forest instead of being focused on the individual trees. And then, you know, talking through the different options. And there's always, in our world, at least there's always opportunity to make um, iterative change and dial it to the needs of the institution, right? Not everybody is going to have existential financial challenges um, in the next year, but most are going to have some financial challenges. Well, you know, if, if we dive in and look at where the opportunities are, and then we get ag as aggressive as we need to be relative to our financial needs and our students' needs. There's a path forward here. We just need to take the time to be thoughtful and understand really the lay of the land at our institutions. I think a lot of times we're tempted to kind of take the easy approach and just go for, um, you know, let's cut 10% across everything or let's mm -hmm. shift to a different kind of a, of a mode because I read an article about that and that sounds like something that's working for another institution. Well, faculty are going to resist something like that because mm -hmm. they should resist it. Those are not great strategies, right? We just Absolutely. need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we approach these problems. I agree completely. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, whenever I've been in a leadership position or been consulting with somebody is I, I say that the first thing I do is a 360 review. I want to talk to everybody. I want to get a sense of where the institution is at. I want to understand where the strength, you know, you do a SWOT analysis. We talked about that in our strategic planning uh, webinar a couple of weeks ago is, you know, you, you do some kind of, you need, like you were saying, faculty respond to, to, you know, data, to reality, you know, they're, they're not, you know, just out there doing what they do. Um, they they understand that there, there's often need for, for change and sometimes they're at the forefront of that. I mean, uh, faculty can be extremely innovative and, and willing to join in. Um, but uh, in any case, um, you know, I want to come back to Jeff's point about the, the student being a customer. I mean, it's so funny because I, I this that always is like a you want to make faculty mad, call their, their, their student a customer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the reality is that um, you know and you know I forget the terminology. The reality is that students are are price sensitive. They they want to know that they're going to be able to graduate on time. You know they want to know that they're going to be able to get the schedule they need. You know all of these things. And and you know what regardless of whether you call them the customer or not. They're looking at all these things that are, are going to you know determine whether they're successful or not, and they're they're a lot more savvy these days. It's not like you know the old days where you couldn't find information on on colleges. You know they're looking online. Their parents are looking online. Um, I see Mani's question. You know changes intuition. Um, it's hard to the hard pill to to swallow when you're paying this you know same money for a cobbled online learning center. Well, this is an emergency. You know that's that's the bottom line there, and these colleges can't pivot on a dime um you know actually they have pivoted on a dime but not in the way that we would, would want in the longer term so you know my expectation is things are going to be much higher quality if for some reason we have to go to remote uh, teaching again in the fall that the quality will be much different but um you know uh, gary had a comment on the tuition costs and again exactly that's exactly at the tuition cost one of the reasons private colleges and i just focus on privates will be hard pressed to lower tuitions because they have that cost basis. Yes, it is costs. what it is. <laughs> and so again, it goes back to the same point that I shared a couple of times, you have to scale those costs. And in almost every case in our research, you can't do that as a standalone college. Right. And that's been the reason I've been looking at this issue is because I know there's some really fantastic institutions out there that have all these fixed costs and, you know, they, they, they need to do something about that. <laughs> you know, I even, yeah, I look at the Portland area where my, my son goes to college and I'm like, there's all these, you know, in, you know where Concordia, you know, went out of business. And, um, you know, there's all these institutions. I'm like, well, what, and plus, on, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that they're going to, if they do decide to bring students back, they need to have more space. 
um, because they can't have as many students in the same space. And so, you know, what if they took the Concordia campus and said, okay, Lewis and Clark, Portland State, University of Portland, you guys can use these different classrooms so that you can space students out, do, do your classes at different times, whatever, make it easier to have social distancing, um, but we're gonna work together and share this space. So. So anyway, that's a start. Yes, that's a start. <laughs> that's why, yeah, I, I, I made sure I sent my article on collaboration to the folks at Lewis and Clark. I'm like, hey, you guys, <laughs> think about this, please. Uh, and but you know, for me, obviously, I'm an insider, so I know I'm, I'm going to pay my son's tuition because I want my son's institution to survive. And you know, that's just the reality right now. If you care about that institution, and if you want this to be an institution that your child can go to in the future, you know, you pay the tuition. You know, even you know, I'm not a big fan of the airlines, but because of the timing of my uh, tech canceling my ticket to Austin for South by Southwest EDU, I had to take, pay a change fee. And I said, you know, it's not a lot of money for me, but you know, I see all the money that the airlines are losing, and I'm not going to go after them to get that. You know. This is the uh, that amount of money back, and it's you know we're in that environment where um, you know I saw some friends uh, complaining about parking fees that they hadn't gotten reimbursed. I'm like, oh come on, the parking lots are still there. <laughs> you know the the people who you know run the parking lots and make sure they're clean and all that are still there. Um, so you know the the if you you know if you want to be at an institution that has these facilities and so on, you know, this, this pandemic is not going to last forever. And um, if we undercut them now, we're, we're going to lose them. <laughs> so, but that doesn't mean they can't find ways to reduce costs. And, you know, especially going forward, um, you know, we know a lot of campuses are using their dorms um, uh, for uh, uh, healthcare workers, um, you know, for first responders, um, you know, so on, you know, so, um, you know, they're going to have to, you know, what are they going to do in the fall if we have a, another wave and you know, we need those spaces again and, and, you know, but anyway, those are just, I just want to throw some of those things out there about why collaboration makes so much sense. Uh, it's partly this, this situation we're in, but you know, Gary, you, you've been doing this stuff for a long time and, and I've been thinking about this for a long time and, you know, we, I know we all have been thinking about this in terms of how are we going to, you know, maintain the capacity to teach as many students who need to be taught while you know making sure that we're doing it in a cost-effective way and that comes back to the question about tuition right it's like are we doing things in the most cost-effective way possible while maintaining quality you know yes i want stanford to maintain their quality <laughs> you know, the, but that's a very different kind of institution that's not where you know it's more the the you know the concordia's the lewis and clark's the portland states you know those kinds of institutions that are the ones that are, are going to have to, to figure out the way through here. So parting comments from um, uh, Gary, I'll start with you. Sure, and just a really quick example. And, and Tom, I'll pick the college, the private colleges between you and me, Kansas City and St. Louis. There are about 10. <laughs> I can tell you the one that is really successful and I can probably rank the other eight or nine of which ones are most likely to not be able to make it. They either choose a different business model or they choose to ultimately not be there for their students, for their faculty, and for their communities. Mm -hmm. Right. Tom, you want to follow up with any comments? Yeah, I mean, our focus is, is a little bit more micro. So what we're advocating, frankly, we've been advocating for for 24 years is an evolution and, a, and just kind of the process of scheduling to make it more student aligned and collaborative and data informed and, um, you know, at, at, at the risk of, you know, using this situation to our own interest, which unfortunately is happening a lot right now. I, I hopefully I don't sound that way, but I, I really do believe um, that that now we we have to do these kinds of things. We have to we have to allocate our faculty in a way that's more intentional and and more cohesive and 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 it, it's it's doable and it it's it's difficult but it's doable and we yeah. need. Absolutely. And Glenn, last, last thoughts? Well, I think uh, the successful colleges and universities of the future are going to be those that have put students first and uh, offer exactly what they need and when they need it and provide the support they need to be successful. Yeah. Yep. 
Absolutely. And on that note, we are right at 10 o'clock. So um, for those who want to share this with your colleagues, the, this is being recorded and I'll be posting it hopefully on our website later today, as long as Zoom keeps up with the <laughs> recordings. We did have a couple that didn't go so well, but uh, hey, six out of eight isn't bad. <laughs> In any case, uh, I really, I can't say enough how much I appreciate you guys' willingness to, to get on here with us and we will be uh, sharing this of course and um if you guys have any follow-up please follow up with these guys they're they're all very open to discussion and and on linkedin or as well as uh you know you get a hold of them directly so in any case um i hope you enjoyed it and i will be back uh in other formats coming up in, over the next month i'll post on uh, our on our site and linkedin and so on uh, where i'll be uh, helping out with some different webinars and so on. But uh, in the meantime, um, I hope everybody stays well. That is the number one thing. And um, we hope that uh, the, the next few months aren't too incredibly stressful for everybody. That's, that's uh, stay healthy and, uh, you know, get your exercise, all those kinds of things. Anyway, all right, take care, everybody. I'm signing off. And don't forget, we, you know, check out Chell, our, our website at www.higheredleads.com. And we always are welcoming to anybody who wants to discuss these issues. Bye-bye.